Thank you for attending this morning's session called Walking the Line, Opioid Dose, excuse me, Opioid Dose De-Escalation. It's a Friday for me, too. Um, if you would, um, please silence your mobile devices out of respect for those around you and our speakers. And if you have yet to do it, would you please download the Pain Week mobile app? We are looking for feedback on this week's events as well as uh, all the sessions. So with that said, our distinguished guests today are Dr. Courtney Komenek. Komenek. I messed it up. I'm sorry. Courtney Komenek, and she is a clinical pharmacy specialist in pain management at the Harry S. Truman Memorial VA Hospital Pharmacy in Columbia, Missouri. And then Dr. Abigail Brooks, who is a clinical pharmacy specialist at the VA Medical Center in West Palm Beach, Florida. Please help me welcome our distinguished panel today. Thank you, everyone, for coming this morning. I was getting a little worried with the size of the room. Um, good news for all of you that are standing in front of me, you will not be called on for audience participation. And everyone who's sitting really far away, you're going to have to participate. Um, just some disclosures. Um, we're both consultants for Axial Healthcare. I've also received honoraria from Daishi Stanko. And today, we both are employed by the VA, but we are here um, not representing the VA or their opinions. Um, and these are our own opinions. Um, and this was not prepared as a part of our official government duties. Some learning objectives for this morning. Identify when we want to initiate a taper, um, when to decide whether just to lower the dose or to decide to um, taper to discontinuation. We'll talk a little bit about how to plan, present that information to a patient, um, and talk about situations in which we want to just stop opioids. And then we will um, talk about providing a rationale for continuing to prescribe opioids at a lower dose or just discontinuing. So we'll come back to these questions at the end. Um, and we do have quite a few patient cases um, as probably the majority of our presentation. So um, we hope you all have had your coffee and are ready to play along. Um, so for our first question, Mr. Miller is a 57-year-old male with low back pain. He's on oxycodone. CR, 40 milligrams, Q12, and is also on diazepam. Awesome combo. He has been stable on this regimen, though, for 10 years. And after talking to the patient, he decides he wants to taper off the oxycodone. Awesome. We have a patient who's engaged and willing to participate. How would you taper this patient off? Reduce by 5 milligrams every three days, 5 milligrams every four weeks, 10 milligrams every three days, or 10 milligrams every four weeks. And then our second question, a rapid taper would be indicated in which circumstance? A patient who's been on opioids for 10 years and requesting a taper, patient with a recent overdose, someone with no functional benefit on high doses of opioids, or someone with a negative urine drug screen prescribed scheduled long-acting opioids. So we'll come back to these, make sure you have the answers at the end. So here we are today, numerous risks associated with opioids. Um, there are lots of guidelines and legislation focused on opioid prescribing, particularly certain doses of opioids. Some states requiring you must taper people to this dose. Um, but you know, we don't have a lot of guidance on how, when and how to taper people. And so hopefully you'll leave here with a little bit more information on that today. So when might we want to 
taper a patient off of opioids. So ultimately everything, whether to continue opioids, discontinue opioids, is a risk to benefit evaluation. So whenever the risks of opioids are outweighing the benefits, then that's a time when we're going to talk about tapering. So that might include not helping their pain or their function. Um, perhaps someone's having side effects that you can't control or mitigate. Um, perhaps they're on a high dosage and the dose is thought to be too risky for um, their other comorbidities or medications or their specific circumstance. Um, maybe they're not following, following the rules or in, and following the treatment plan or doing things that are unsafe. If they have a substance use disorder, that would be a time to taper someone. We don't want to just taper them and abandon them, though. We want to make sure that they're referred to appropriate services and receive treatment for that substance use disorder. If they've had an opioid overdose, that should be a big red flag, big red flag, that we need to make a change in the plan and we need to do something different. If perhaps the patient is diagnosed or has comorbidities that increase their risk, things like sleep apnea, COPD, I find that um, nearly all of my patients have both. Awesome. Definitely should be on opioids and a benzo. Um, so if there's comorbidities or perhaps they get a new diagnosis that increases their risk, um, then we want to make a change. If there's other medications on board that increase the risk, the big one that we think of is benzodiazepines. That would be a time for us to consider tapering. And maybe if mental health comorbidities are at play or could be worsened, then we want to talk about a taper. So opioid risks, um, there's lots of them. Um, two, two big ones um, we can think of are doses of opioids and duration of opioids. Um, we've talked about respiratory conditions that can include COPD, asthma, um, sleep disordered breathing. If someone has an acute psychiatric instability or is suicidal, that would be a risk and concern for the use of opioids. Uh, if there's a history of drug overdose, that's a big, big red flag. Um, or other mental health disorders can increase patients' risks with opioids. And there's still more. Co-administration co with um, other medications that can lead to a, a fatal drug-drug interaction, benzodiazepines, if the patient's on methadone, having a prolonged QTC interval, if there's concerns with diversion or aberrant behavior, um, if they've had side effects to medications, that could be a risk. Um, traumatic brain injury is one, or there's even pain conditions when opioids aren't even appropriate, so fibromyalgia or headaches. Um, and I do see those very commonly in patients who, and, that are prescribed opioids. Um, so there's many, many risks, and a lot of times when I'm working with patients um, and kind of and doing that risk-to-benefit association, I like to refer to this list and kind of see which ones, which ones they come up with um, and list them out and then compare them to their benefits in terms of their activity, quality of life, and um, pain relief that they're receiving from these opioids and kind of weigh them next to each other. You know, are they getting adequate relief? Are they employed? Are they doing their normal daily activities? Are they being social? Or are they just laying in bed all day and are wheelchair bound and not doing much of anything and have COPD and sleep apnea? So th this kind of helps me create that risk to benefit ratio. So a few taper considerations. Um, hopefully you've been to some of the other talks um, this week, talking that you know not everyone 
should be tapered off of their opioids. There are people that are doing just fine, receiving benefit, and that the benefits are outweighing the risks. So I very commonly get consulted to taper patients on um, five hydro, four hydrocodone a day, five through 25. Um, they work full time, they volunteer at their church, they um, are social, they like to go out dancing with their wife, not having any side effects, no comorbidities, drug-drug interactions, aberrant behavior, there's nothing I find on the PDMP, there's nothing in their drug screen, and I get referrals, taper this patient off. Seems like the benefits are outweighing the risks, so not everyone should be tapered. And there are times, too, when we get into a taper and we notice that as we lower the dose, there may be changes in that risk-to-benefit profile and maybe the benefits are going away and they're no longer functional. So maybe at that point we need to consider pausing the taper. I think initially at the outset when you're working with a patient and the plan is to make an adjustment in their dose in opioids, it's important to know what the end goal is. And the end goal perhaps may change during the course of you working with that patient. But in some cases it's very clear that the end goal is to be discontinued off of opioids. Or the other, other, might, other option might be reduction in dose to um, improve the risk to benefit profile. So I think that's important to talk about first is kind of what, what is the end goal here. It's thought that about 20 to 25% of the previous day's dose is needed to prevent acute withdrawal. Um, overall, I'd say tapering, kind of like pain management, it, there's a lot of art involved. There's some science, but um, there's a lot of art involved. I would say that in general, I typically, you know, we can slow down the taper, we can pause the taper, um, but very, very rarely would I ever reverse the taper and increase the dose back up. But there may be circumstances where that would be appropriate because the patient has lost their functional or analgesic benefits um, and no longer you know, providing benefits, and we feel that it's reasonable compared to the risks. Typically, when tapering, I use the medication the patient is already on. There may be circumstances where you can't do that, where perhaps a patient is transferring care, maybe they have a new insurance provider, that medication's not on their formulary, and you may perhaps have to um, convert them to another opioid first that's within um, the formulary or available, um, but say 97% of the time I'm using the medication they're already on. Typically reducing the dose incrementally, and then once the dose is reduced as much as we can, then we'll start adjusting the frequency of administration. And the speed of taper varies. So that det the, the speed is determined based on um, why we're tapering the patient. Um, so we may even consider discontinuation in a situation where there's unsafe or illegal behaviors and it's too risky to provide additional medication. Um, typically, ultra-rapid tapers aren't um, commonplace, but perhaps if there were um, serious situations and we felt like we needed to taper, or there were significant comorbidities, we could make rapid adjustments. 
But more often than that, there's gradual dose reductions. For most patients, the longer you're on an opioid and the higher the dose, we're typically going to be doing it slower. And that can be um, taking 10, 5, 10, up to 25% every one to four weeks. So in those chronic patients who have been on these medications for many years, I may be making a 10% reduction every three months. So it may take a while to taper these patients off of medications. Um, a lot of times I work with patients, you know, how quickly do you want to do this? Um, oftentimes, because you have to write a new prescription every month, dose changes can occur in a monthly fashion, but you can always pause it and extend that out further. Examples of tapering strategies, so the lowest one, um, that 10% every four to eight weeks with pauses as needed, um, and this is probably where most of the patients would, um, would fit in. Slower um, tapers are, again, for those patients who've been on these medications for longer periods of time, higher doses. Um, but the, the quicker you want to do it, the more concerned you're about with the patient. So, um, rapid tapers can be 20 to 50% of the first dose and reducing that every day. But that's something that would be happening more so in an inpatient setting where there's a lot more support available to the patient. Um, and I think a lot of things, too, is the speed of the taper is often determined by how we're able, our availability to follow up with that patient. Um, so to be able to see a patient every day or have a patient come into clinic that frequently um, is unrealistic often. Um, so sometimes I'll see patients once a week or follow up with them on the phone once a week to make that dose change if I'm working on a faster taper. A few more clinical pearls. If they have been on the medication short term and for fairly low dose, you really don't need to taper them. I have seen patients on five, 325 milligrams of hydrocodone being tapered off, um, and, and that's fine. Um, you're not going to, as long as there's not significant risk, tapering them isn't really going to cause harm, um, but may not necessarily be needed. Um, fentanyl patches. Um, I've actually been working with a patient recently on high doses of fentanyl patches, and um, she wasn't aware that there were 12, 12 microgram patches available so that you can make a dose adjustment in 12 microgram increments, and was actually cutting her fentanyl patches to, um, to initiate a taper. And it was a, a tricky situation to navigate because obviously we don't want to cut fentanyl patches. And we had a very serious conversation about the risks associated with that. But at the same time, I didn't want her to feel discouraged about trying to make an effort to lower her opioid dose. Um, so I made sure to let her know, yes, we do have 12 microgram patches. When you're ready for the next dose change, call me. I'll be happy to make that adjustment. Just because you're tapering opioids doesn't mean you should abandon any sort of risk mitigation strategies. So urine drug monitoring should continue to be performed. I've seen when tapering patients um, that I would like with the end goal of getting tapered off of opioids is that sometimes I'll often find um, illicit substances in their urine that will ultimately lead to a change in the speed of their taper. You can consider tablet counts. Um, not one of my favorite strategies. I feel like you can kind of cheat that pretty easily. Um, or you can consider giving them small amounts of opioids, giving a week's supply at a time. That can be burdensome for you and for the patient, but may 
um, help limit the quantity of medications that they have on hand. Naloxone, yes, we're tapering patients, but naloxone, I think, still has a role here, particularly talking to patients that um, when we're lowering their doses is that they're going to lose their tolerance. And if they were to go to their previous dose, that could be deadly. Or if perhaps patients um, do turn to other sources of opioid medications, um, those could have fentanyl in them and could be deadly. So I think naloxone is still important here. Most of the time, I typically avoid tapering long-acting or extended-release opioids and immediate-release opioids at the same time. Um, you can make a case for starting with one or the other. Um, a lot of times to include the patient in that decision process, I'll talk to them and, and say which one you want to go with. A lot of times I'll start with the extended release or long-acting opioid first um, so that they can have those immediate release opioids um, to take in between. Um, and then the other consideration too is to avoid tapering of both the opioid and benzodiazepine at the same time. Some guidelines recommend tapering the opioid first and then getting to the benzodiazepine. And I'll hand it over to Abby. Thanks, Courtney. Can you guys hear me okay? Yes? Okay. So um, I'm going to kind of move through these next few slides quickly because, as we mentioned, we have lots of cases and we want it to be interactive and engaging. Um, and we want to generate some discussion from the audience. So that's what we want to spend the most time doing. But in the process of tapering or reducing a patient's opioid dose, you want to make sure you're offering bridging therapies or other modalities to help treat their pain because that's like the number one question I get. If you're going to take away my opioids, what are you going to do to help treat my pain instead? So you want to have some of these ideas in your back pocket. It could be things like acupuncture, spinal manipulation, physical therapy, or a TENS unit if you have access to those resources or can refer them to other providers in your community. Or perhaps procedures or other interventions like that or trigger point injections could be options for the patient as well. Even if, if you don't have these options or the patient's not willing to engage in services like these, you know, we always have the pain psychologist. Um, you could even use other non-opioid pain medications. I, I also use those frequently in the process of opioid dose reductions or tapering as well because it helps make their taper a little bit more tolerable. All right, so these are the happy outcomes associated with opioid dose reduction. I've been to some of the other presentations yesterday where there were some not so nice or not so positive outcomes from opioid dose reductions. So take, you know, you're going to have to take the good with the bad. I think it's all about how you present it to the patient and how you work with the patient, right? So I always make sure that they know that it's not a cookie cutter model. We're not going to treat you exactly the same way we treat everybody else, and your case is unique, and we'll come up with a unique regimen that works for you. Um, because when you continue to do it despite their lack of engagement or their refusal, or you know, there's no other safety concerns or harms, but they're just really not, their quality of life is suffering to the point, but you don't seem to have empathy or, or really care about that, that's where you really start to run into problems, and the patient experience really gets tainted. So keep that in mind. So like we said, present the plan to the patient. Oftentimes my patients are like, okay, what's, what's my goal? Like, this is my dose now. What are we talking about getting to? And as, as Courtney mentioned, 
that could change, so you want to let them know that up front, but I do kind of give them a heads up if they're asking specifically what our target dose is so that they kind of have an idea and they know what they're working towards. So you would want to advise them, give them medical advice about the risks of long-term opioids, assess the patient's readiness to discontinue the opioid. I'll be honest, honestly, my first time seeing the patient, I'm not reducing their dose or adjusting their dose at all. I'm just meeting them, getting to know them, establishing that trust and rapport with them. And then if I bring them back in a month, two months, three months, at that time, they've had time to kind of think about the discussion we've had, what's going to end up happening, and then we start the dose reduction or taper at that time. And then assist the patient. So provide a written taper schedule, review the ultimate goal, make it very, very clear what steps or expectations you have between now and the next time that you see them. You want to listen to the patient's story, their concerns, and their fears. That is like a huge component of the first time meeting a patient, right? You, they need to kind of almost unload on you and give them, give you the whole story, their treatment and, and interactions they've had with other providers and what their day-to-day -day life is like. And it's important for you to understand that and have empathy as well. Acknowledge their fears about tapering. Let them know that it's a challenging process, but that you're in it together and that you're there to support them. Ask about the goals. So, Draw out their goals for life. Discuss how you can support um, the patient during the taper, especially when it comes to their goals. Now, the only caution I would have here is you have, if you have a hopeless patient or a goalless patient, that can be quite challenging. And oftentimes, if that's the first time I'm meeting them, I'll say, okay, I really want you to think about some functional goals that you have now. And then when you come back, that's, that's going to be one of the first things we talk about because you have to have goals. And if you don't have goals, then why are we continuing on their pain medications for any, you know what I mean? So it's really important for you to have goals. It doesn't have to be anything major. I tell them, I'm not expecting you to run a marathon. I'm not expecting you to run a 5K. Maybe you used to garden and you don't do that anymore. Or maybe you have grandkids and you don't go to their baseball games and that's something you'd like to be able to do. Those little things do make a difference. Educate the patient, so inform them about the, bioso the biopsychosocial model of pain treatment now compared to the biomedical model. Offer the alternative treatment modalities, and then slowly tapering the patient, but you're not cutting them off and you're not dismissing them from your clinic in any type of way. Okay, when it comes to benzodiazepine tapering, um, multiple guidelines recommend against the use of opioids and benzos. I feel like we've harped on that enough, right, already? There's serious adverse consequences associated with benzodiazepine use listed here. Now, the only caveat with tapering a benzodiazepine is unlike opioid tapering, opioid withdrawal is not deadly, right? It's quite uncomfortable. The patient will feel miserable, but it's not deadly. Benzodiazepine tapering and benzodiazepine withdrawal can be quite dangerous, potentially even deadly. So it's very, very important that you're tapering the benzodiazepine slowly and appropriately. So here's some recommendations for tapering a benzodiazepine. You may want to consider switching to a long-acting benzo. The recommendations are to reduce the dose by 50% in the first two to four weeks, maintain on that dose for one to two months, and then reduce by 25% every two weeks after that. There were some new guidelines just released in Canada for reducing um, benzos in the elderly. They recommend a dose reduction of 25% every two weeks or so, and then once you get closer to the end of the taper, reducing the dose by 12.5% instead. Again, there's no, I mean, depending on the patient case, there's no timeline, right? So you have time. Again, if the patient did nothing wrong, we're purely just working on their regimen because of the change in the guidelines and the laws and other things like that, or their insurance coverage, I try to work with them and be as understanding as possible. 
Um, for time's sake, I'm going to kind of skip over this. And just like with, and I tell patients this too, just like with um, opioids or alternatives that are non-opioids, the same goes for benzos. There are non-benzodiazepine alternatives available depending on what type of mental health condition you're treating, PTSD, anxiety, or insomnia. Or if the patient's taking diazepam for muscle spasms, we have other non-benzodiazepine muscle relaxants out there as well. Oh, and that brings us to our wheel of tapering, where we're going to channel our inner... Oh, wait, where did the mouse go? I can't see. I think you have to oh, see it. <laughs> we're going to channel it our inner before. Vanna White here. So 45 minutes ago, this was working. Yeah. Okay, so the whole idea is that we're going to engage the audience, and we're going to spin the wheel, and whatever the, cl the case is that it lands on, we're going to ask you for your input to, about how we would taper or reduce the patient's opioid dose. So do you want me to start? Or? Go ahead and spin, Abby. Okay, I'm going to spin. And Courtney's going to pick our, our first audience participant. Big money, big money. Hold on. And the answer is recent overdose. Uh oh What is this case going to say? Okay, so let's see if it all works. Woohoo! Okay. So, Mr. Ocean is a 52-year-old man diagnosed with CRPS in his right lower extremity due to an injury. He's been stable on his regimen of hydrocodone acetaminophen in combination with clonidine and venlafaxine. His wife contacted the clinic to alert you that he, he had been admitted to a local hospital to, due to an opioid overdose. He presents to the clinic two days post-hospital discharge. So he, had been, he admits that he had been taking more of the hydrocodone acetaminophen than prescribed, up to 8 to 10 tablets per day, and had been drinking alcohol due to his pain and feeling depressed um, the day he overdosed. The hospital discharged him on a lower dose of hydrocodone acetaminophen, we won't even get into that, <laughs> and reports having 10 tablets left. How would you proceed with the opioid taper? Do we have any volunteers? And I know you probably have the slides and the answers in front of you, but we're really looking for engagement without... Um, no cheating. Taking a peek, yeah. Does anybody want to volunteer? Ooh, we have a hand. So we hear rapid taper. So he wants to do a 50% reduction initially. So he has 10 tablets left. Would you give him more? So he wants to follow up very closely with the patient, see him very frequently, perhaps daily if needed. Um, he suggested doing a 50% reduction initially and then maybe smaller doses, um, smaller reductions after and that. And I, I like all of those things. One more question before we reveal the answer. Would you, can you think of any risk mitigation strategies you might employ for this patient while you're doing the taper? You're in drug screens? Okay, very good. All right, so we agree, rapid taper, and we totally agree we'd only taper using the tablets that he has left. So we suggested going to one tablet three times a day for two days, one tablet twice a day for one day, one tablet daily for two days, then he'd be off. Obviously, you want to offer a referral to mental health for substance use disorder treatment, perform suicide risk assessment, offer him a naloxone kit and overdose um, education, especially because he recently presented to the hospital with overdose. And you don't want to abandon him. He still has pain, right? So you want to offer him non-opioid and non-pharmacologic pain management modalities. Excellent. 
Thanks for volunteering. Yes. All right. So Courtney's going to spin the wheel now. Hopefully it's a good one. Let me get a mic. What's it going to be? A barren urine. <gasps> we have some of it figured out, not everything. A barren urine drug monitoring case one. Mr. Fox, 55-year-old male, transferred his care from out of state. Favorite patient. I heard a yay out there. He has been diagnosed with chronic neck and back pain as well as diabetic neuropathic pain. He's on morphine SR, 60Q8, hydromorphone for TID, pregabalin, and topical lidocaine. He is, he gets a gold star though because he brought his records with him. How often does that happen? <laughs> um, however, you review them, nothing really significant there but his high dose regimen. But you're seeing the patient for the first time, so you're going to implement all of your normal risk mitigation strategies and you get a drug screen. Dun, dun, dun. So you use your immunoassay in-house test and find that he is positive for opiates and positive for cocaine. What would you do? Um, we do get a confirmatory test because we want to make sure that we make decisions off of um, confirmatory findings and um, that benzoylcognine is still there, the metabolite of cocaine. So typically on an amino assay, cocaine is cocaine. Um, pretty reliable. It's not as lidocaine that he got at the dentist. Yeah. Um, not structurally related. So pretty reliable, but that's, that's cocaine. Um, so do we have any volunteers of what you might do? I'll flip back to his medications. Okay, awesome. You have a hand. I have a mic, and I'm coming so that we can all hear you. And notice, it's the two sections way over there that are trying to hide from us. Okay, she's saying bring him in to talk. And then, what po and then I guess what decision would you make based on... Um, well, you have to hear his story, because maybe he had ENT surgery three days ago. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so we learned that uh, yesterday evening. Okay. So what's now, the response now, to Now, would you rely on his verbal report of that? No, you have to get records. Correct. Okay. So let's say he didn't have ENT surgery. He truly was using cocaine. What speed of a taper would you select? I haven't prescribed him anything, right? Well, he, he's been taking this regimen. What would you do? Would you write him anything? Would you taper him? Would you say you're out of luck? See, how many pills does he have left? When was the last time he took his medicine? He's positive, so probably has some number of pills left. So you could do an ultra-rapid taper, maybe you know, write him a week's worth and taper him off. Okay, so you can give him pregabalin and then refer him to substance abuse, too. Okay. So she's saying a, a, a rapid or ultra-rapid over about a week or so, continue his non-opioids and refer him for substance abuse treatment. You can continue the lidocaine, yeah. So again, we agree, rapid taper, taper the morphine SR first, and then the hydromorphone. We want to make sure we give that naloxone. Um, there are now reports of people thinking it's cocaine and there's some fentanyl in there. So there's lots of other things getting mixed together. Um, make sure you're setting them up um, for other treatments. Something technical assistance, something happened with the screen over here. And then did you have a comment? 
Well, yes, you said this patient is just transferring to my care, so he's not my patient yet. Right. I'm, I'm looking at this, and I'm going, why am I going to accept this train wreck into my practice? Thank so that, you very that's much. Cer- that's certainly an option. Have a, have a nice day. And you could all, and you could always, if that if that's your if that's your decision, you could offer him some clonidine or something like that for his withdrawal. And okay, that's that's a fair enough statement. This is an art; it's not a science. That's why we that's why we do this. We also learned yesterday that that one for the road prescription idea sometimes backfires, and that folks use that to overdose and. Uh, and end it, so I'm not feeling real comfortable about giving them a script to send them on their way. A lot of good discussion here. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's, let's spin the wheel again. Do you want to just be on the microphone? Or do you want to switch off? All right, Vanna, you're in drug screen version oh three. Oh, boy. <sighs> Mr. White, 63-year-old man, he is following your chronic pain clinic. He has a history of chronic cervical pain with radiculopathy and diabetic neuropathic pain. He comes to his appointment for his medication renewal, and he's in a motorized scooter. You notice and observe that he's sedated in clinic, even falling asleep during your interview. He is on morphine, SA30Q12 and morphine IR 7.5 BIDPRN. He admits to occasionally taking his wife's sleep medication at night, but otherwise denies any medication misuse. You get a random urine drug screen. You find that he's positive on his immunoassay for opiates and benzodiazepines. And on um, confirmatory results, you find that he's positive for morphine, hydromorphine, hydromorphine, hydromorphone, nordiazepam, temazepam, and oxazepam. All right. How would you proceed? Who wants to volunteer? Excellent. All right. So speed of the taper, sir, if you feel like a taper is warranted or indicated. I think there's a definite problem uh, here. Uh, I believe that there's some oxycodone or, uh, um, um, oh, that's what I that's what I suspect coming from his wife uh, is more likely. And he's he's just taking too much. I would do a uh, rapid uh, decrease, rapid. So now with the confirmatory results, it's only showing that he's taking the morphine. So and what's probably contributing is. The benzodiazepine so, use, or or there's something else going on. Well, hydromorphone is a small, actual minor metabolite of morphine, so it's it's plausible that it's from mm-hmm. the morphine. Um, and then the likely explanation for the rest is that it's from diazepam, because those are all metabolites that we can't, you know, go out and say that he could be taking multiple things at the same time. Um, people do that, um, but so you're saying rapid, rapid. And um, would you offer any, would you do any risk mitigation strategies, do any other, anything else besides um, taper? And you're talking to taper him off, correct? Strictly strictly taper. All right. Let's see what the answer is. So a fast, a fast taper, rapid taper, doing it pretty quickly. Um, 
dropping that morphine assay first. Um, we have weekly adjustments here. So a lot of times when I'm working with students or trainees, we want to have a perfect right answer. I think that's just part of us being pharmacists is we, we like having a right answer. And sometimes there are multiple right answers. So this isn't exactly, you know, you, you could do something similar um, um, along these lines and you know this isn't the only right answer and I would even add on to this that this would be with the caveat that he agrees to no longer takes his wife's sleep medication and a urine drug screen probably every seven days when he comes in for his next prescription if he can't agree to those terms then we can't necessarily agree to taper him off his meds and then he's he obviously needs referral for insomnia treatment if he's resorting to taking his wife's meds for sleep and then we have a comment over here. I'm coming your way. <laughs> you guys are making me get my exercise. Yeah, maybe I should trade off with her. I think I've given her all the hard jobs. <laughs> when I had the conversation with the patient, I would also make sure that the wife is there so she understands the importance of not allowing him to take I like it. I 100% agree. And if she's not in the room, I would ask for his concurrence to call her and speak with her while you're while he's in the office with you. Because oftentimes it's it's innocent enough. You know, a lot of patients don't think anything about sharing medications, but it's very important that they understand the safety and legal potential um, impacts of that. So I I think an important comment here though is is really addressing and having that communication with that with that patient first as to why they were taking the sleep medication and what's changed. And I mean, we can't forget about the patient and the patient care that we should be providing. Some people may argue that, I mean, other than the fact that he's sedated, you know, this could be like a one-time exception. You've, had, you've documented that you've gone over this with him. He can't do it again. And if it happens again, then you would consider doing something at that point. I mean, so again, it's an art, not a science. We'll take one more comment and then we're gonna spin the wheel again. I guess my fly in the ointment comment would be this. Uh, we learned here the other day that prescription opioid use has declined over the years, but opioid-related deaths have been on the increase. How many of these patients and how do we address the fact that if he doesn't get it from us, he's going to get it on the street? Uh, in Arizona, there's a lot of uh, Mexican uh, 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 opioids with uh, fentanyl uh, coming across and uh, how many patients like this are we driving towards street drugs and are we really doing the uh, how do we balance that and that's the question I have well I think you also have to look at it from a from your license standpoint if he's sedated in your clinic he could hit some. He could have a motor vehicle accident. He could hit someone in his motorized scooter. I mean, <laughs> so you have. To, I think you have to see both sides of the situation. That's why I feel like maybe you. It sounds like you might err on the side of this is your one-time warning. Please don't do it again. And if it happens again, we'll taper you at that time versus tapering him right off the bat. I think one of the important things, though, is. Um, maybe this is how I would have proceeded or Abby would have proceeded. You may have done something different. I think we have a lot of really great discussion and feedback in the audience. I think one of the important things, though, is that you document why you're choosing to do what you're doing right. and include that in your note. And 
I, I completely agree with everyone you know else out there. You know, you want to have that discussion to the patient. What's going on? Um, you know, why are you having to take these medications? What change is going on? And so we want to have those discussions with the patient. All right, spin the wheel, Vanna. I don't have a pretty ball gown though. <laughs> Can't be perfect with the technology. Yeah. Significant comorbidities for a thousand dollars. Just kidding. It's the daily double. <laughs> Mr. Ms. Carter. Ms. Carter is a 60-year-old female with post-laminectomy syndrome. She has COPD with moderate control. Recently, her husband reported that she snores a lot at night. So she had a sleep study completed. Um, she has severe sleep apnea. She got her CPAP. And now after all of that, she says she refuses to take her CPAP home. <laughs> she is currently prescribed hydrocodone ER, 40 milligrams Q12. What would you do? Any volunteers? To the patient with COPD and sleep apnea refusing to use a CPAP machine. And you don't want somebody on an extended release if they have uh, respiratory depression. You don't want an extended release tab because you can't reverse it quickly. Okay. Yeah, so there is, um, or there is literature out there to suggest that the overdose risk is greater with extended release or long-acting opioids compared to immediate release opioids. So you're saying you would maybe convert her to an immediate release opioid? That's what I would do initially when I first see her. Okay. What about the fact that she's not going to take her CPAP machine or use it? But then she'd come down even further. I mean, it would be very, very limited, probably more like an inset or maybe a non-narcotic. Okay. All right. So then you're saying, yeah, lack of non-compliance with the CPAP machine would mean no opioids. So I think the other thing, too, to point out is the CPAP isn't going to completely prevent her from the central, um, centrally, central sleep apnea that occurs with um, opioid medications, but certainly not helpful if she's not going to use it. Okay, we'll take one more comment before we reveal the answer, or what we came up with as an answer. Hi. Um, I'm actually an otolaryngology nurse practitioner, and my specialty is sleep apnea. Um, the last guy I would have been concerned about sleep apnea as why he's taking the medicine and can't sleep. There are lots of options. One, I would want to know if she's obese. Um, to, if not obese, may be able to put her in a dental um, piece. And we now have new technology that is an implanted electronic device that we can insert um, into the base of the tongue that will lift her tongue every time she has sleep apnea. So a patient like this, get off the hydrocodone and send to somebody like us. Awesome. Thank you. Good to have That's someone interesting. Um, interesting background, you know, not our typical uh, participant. Um, All right, so let's draw more. I, I do like to talk, you know, with patients, too. Sometimes it's their specific mask or, you know, there's some, some sort of issue that they have, and they're, like she's already mentioned, lots of other options that we can consider. So thank you for your comment there. Um, let's see where we're at. 743. Another right. case? Yeah. Let's do it. Does any, well, oh. maybe show the, show the uh, list of options, and I don't know if anybody has a particular one that they want to see that we haven't revealed yet. Yeah. Um, okay. 
can't be perfect here. Um, we've got no functional benefit. Cl click the next slide, Courtney, oh. and then that'll be easier to see, I think. You're so smart. All right, so the dark purple ones we've done, the light purple ones we haven't. Is there anybody who really wants to see another urine drug screen one? How about okay. functional benefit? Raise your hand. Concomitant benzo. All right, PDMP for 2000. And then we'll make sure we'll try and get to that benzodiazepine taper case yeah. too. Mr. Oz, 79-year-old male. Um, he has been going to a local retail pharmacy for many years. Um, the float pharmacist there checks um, the PDMP when he drops off some um, prescriptions for oxycodone controlled release and oxycodone IR. Um, she doesn't see that you know the PDMP has been done recently. Some places you got to check it every time before you fill it. Um, so she she takes a look and does it. She finds out the patient has been filling the same prescriptions with cash at another retail pharmacy about 30 minutes away every month for the last eight months. So now the this, pharmacist... This has happened to me recently. Yeah, this is, and this has happened to me as well several years ago. But we, as the pharmacist in the retail setting, obviously you can't taper, but what would you do with the taper in this, in this scenario? I wouldn't. Interesting. I love it. Let's, re let's reveal the answer. Exactly. No taper is needed. Failing duplicate opioids in another pharmacy for several months, no taper is warranted. Now, as a pharmacist in the community setting, you alert both prescribers about the significant PDMP results, inform the patient why you're not filling his opioid, and have a nice day, right? All right. And then we'll do the benzo tapering one. And, um, and then we'll wrap it up. And we appreciate everybody's cooperation with our technology. Ms. Bloomfield, a 45-year-old female with low back pain, neck pain, and also has anxiety. Been taking morphine SA 30Q12, oxycodone IR, duloxetine, because duloxetine fixes everything, and diazepam 5, TID, PRN. Um, you're her primary care provider. You look at the most recent guidelines, and you are worried really worried because she's on an opioid and the benzo at the same time. So you have an open and honest conversation with the patient and you talk to the patient about the risks and um, a lot of times in this situation I'll say pick one, you know, you know which one do you want to work on tapering, lowering off, um, and she says she wants to get off her diazepam and stay on her opioids for ongoing pain management. So who wants to volunteer but oh how they're going to taper the, the diazepam. Okay, Just, I guess we can let it slide. Okay, you guys one. were good. Yeah. <laughs> so I think one thing, too, I noticed is that she it's listed as PRN, so you want to talk to her. How, how often is she taking it? Is she actually taking it PRN, or is she taking it three times a day? Um, and so she's taking it three times a day. Um, so here we have suggested... Um, Going to twice a day. Going to twice and a day, 7.5 milligrams for one to two months, um, and then making an adjustment to um, one of those doses, um, 5 milligrams and 7.5 milligrams, and taking those small cuts of 2.5 milligrams at a time, because that's kind of the lowest that we can make that adjustment by. Um, even though you're lowering those doses, I think it would be important to even provide, you know, 
hopefully when you initially sat down and had, had this conversation with the patient, you've already provided them those, that opioid overdose education because they're on this combination of medications and you've provided them that naloxone kit. So hopefully that's already done. And then you want to, you know, make sure that we're treating her anxiety and other reasons why she was taking those medications and making sure um, that she gets the care she needs that's safer. Well, thank you, everybody, for your participation. We can take, take any questions. Um, we hope you enjoyed it. We tried to make interactive and fun. PTSD, guanfacin works beautifully. Uh, I have uh, had people on large doses of alprazolam that I've been get, able to get off fairly quickly with that. Thank you for sharing that. Any other questions or comments? Yes. In the last case, when the patient was getting two different from two different pharmacies, that's called doctor shopping. And I, I wouldn't, what I would do, I'd just turn them right into the police. I don't waste my time. And the other thing, I think you have to be so much more careful in who you take into your practice by doing PDMP checks, uh, police background checks, and don't take anyone who comes from another doctor without reviewing the records. And a lot of these things that we talked about, some of them can be avoided and have a, a very strong list of things, do's and don'ts in your practice. Like I don't keep people who smoke, who won't lose weight, won't do what I ask them to do, and they sign it. And that's one way of reducing. Am I 100% successful? Hell no. But you'll have to make that type of effort. Okay, very good. Thank you for sharing. And then another comment. How about patients that really deserve to be on some uh, low-dose benzo with pain medication, like Meniere's or other type of conditions that really cannot eliminate that, but very low dose in, in the benzo? I would Definitely, it's, it's an art, not a science, and I would agree with you. You have to, you have to look at the whole picture. There might be certain circumstances where it would be appropriate, but I think you want to have all of that documented that you've had those discussions, you've given them the education, you've done the naloxone. But I would say that's more of the exception than the rule. Yeah, very good. Thank you, everybody. We'll take questions up front, um, and have a great rest of your Friday.